All right. Well, you can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. And we are going through the book of Acts. The series is called, Let's Go Change the World. And the sermon today is called, How People Respond to the Gospel. Luke wants you and me, is the author of Acts. He wants you and me to have great assurance that the gospel is true, that Jesus is alive, and that you should believe it. And God's word models for us that Jesus commands us to go and become bold witnesses for this truth. He doesn't just want us to believe it with conviction, he wants us to share it with conviction. So today, we are going to learn how to become bold witnesses for the gospel through the, uh, the apostles and the believers in the early church. Do you know, regardless of the response that we get, we should believe that Jesus is alive and we need to share him with the world. You and I, we will get a variety of responses to the gospel. And even if you do your very best to share your faith in a courteous, courageous way, you can't predict how people are going to respond. We want you to learn how to become bold witnesses, no matter how people are responding, because it is the Holy Spirit who is using you. When you think about sharing your faith with others, how do you feel? Do you feel unprepared? Do you feel, like, nervous, like, I don't know what to say? Do you feel afraid, like, I can't do that? Um, do you feel a little embarrassed because other Christians have kind of been really obnoxious, and so if people find out you're one of those people, you might get mocked or scorned? What emotions come up when you think about boldly witnessing for your faith? And let me ask you this question. When you were not a Christian, how did you first react to the gospel? How many of you would say that when someone started telling you about Christ or you started learning about the gospel, that you reacted poorly at first? Raise your hand if you reacted poorly at first. When you Now look around, keep your hand up. You, look, my hand is up, okay? You reacted poorly at first when someone took initiative to start telling you about Jesus, right? I remember I was in college, and I remember we were talking about the Bible. I somehow had a Bible, and I threw the Bible across the driveway and said, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't know how you reacted, but a lot of people will react poorly to the gospel first. It's because you're challenging their entire way of life. So don't lose heart. One man in our church, you know, we call him Murph for short, but one man, he's, his story's hilarious. He said people started calling him from this church he attended, and he said, they better stop calling me. These people won't leave me alone. And now he's a bold Christian, and he loves telling other people about Jesus. Well, let's pray, and then we will learn in God's word how to be bold witnesses no matter the response we get. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Help us to share our faith with courage and confidence Help us to get ready because people are going to respond in different ways. We will get good responses where people have been longing for a truth like this. We will get nothing from some people. They will just not react. They won't care about our faith. And then we will get some people who are greatly opposed to the message of the gospel or to the fact that we're trying to push our religion on them. We do want to become bold witnesses for the gospel, so we pray that you would encourage us and prepare us today, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 11, verse 19. This is a bit of a two-parter, because it'll be a cliffhanger ending. 
and then we'll continue next Sunday with the rest of the passage. We also have a lot of ground to cover. There's a lot of people we're talking about today. And so we're, we're in a sense, going to bite off more than we can chew. All right, I'm telling you that in advance. Acts 11, verse 19, here's what it says. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Those are the Greeks. Also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This report, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. That's also Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. How cool is that? All right, the first thing you can write down is this. We're going to look at different people today. The first thing you can write down is this. Believers who were scattered by persecution. What do we learn from them? There were believers who were scattered by persecution. That's how this whole prairie fire of gospel impact started. Let's learn from them first. It says in verse 19, those who were scattered. They lived in Jerusalem, and Paul started leading the charge to kill all the Christians, especially those who were non-Jewish speaking, those who were from the surrounding area. They are creating a fire that's going to go out there. We won't be able to stop it. So you know the story. Paul started killing Christian, door to door, he was trying to find these Christians. And then Paul got saved. When in a rage, he was on his way to Damascus to arrest more Christians. He got saved. So their hero was taken out. So now this persecution kind of stopped. But the Christians were thrown out of Jerusalem all over. They were flung all over. And what did they do? What did they do? They started telling other people about Jesus, which is super exciting. The persecution backfired. They couldn't, they weren't scared silent. They weren't playing it safe. No, they started telling people Jesus is alive. You can have assurance the gospel is true because these early Christians, when life got hard, they weren't like, I didn't believe this stuff anyway. Let's just give it up. They were, they were telling people this is true because it was true. And they were suffering for it. So believers who were scattered by persecution, tell us a lot. Let's put that map up there on the screen just to get your geography bearings. This is uh, Paul's early travel. So you've got Jerusalem down there in the, in the bottom, and then you've got Damascus where he was going, and then as you go up north, there's Syria, there's Cilicia, there's Cyprus over on the left. So this is where the gospel started to spread, and they started to see these revivals uh, breaking out. And Saul was up in Tarsus, and then Barnabas went and got him and brought him back to Antioch. And Antioch, I know you can't really see it, is up there uh, all the way toward the top. Tarsus is just over to the left. So this is where these things are happening. All right, jot this down. What do they teach us? Well, these believers accepted great change and loss for the gospel. Write that down. They accepted great change and loss for the gospel. Packed up, moved out of the city. Maybe went back to where they were from, but it's time to go. Time to go. Great change and loss. 
Elsewhere in the New Testament, it will say that some believers early on gave up their property to confiscation. They lost jobs. They couldn't be as integrated in the community as they once were. Some of them lost their lives, but they accepted great change and loss for the gospel. So faith cost them something immediately. And when you became a Christian, did it cost you anything? Maybe it did. Maybe you're like, I was four and everyone was happy. Or maybe you went through like communion or confirmation, I mean, you went through some religious class and you got a lot of money for doing that. And you're like, it was a sweet deal when I went public with my faith. Maybe it wasn't genuine though. That's my story. I don't know. When you were taking faith seriously, did people, were they happy about that in your family growing up? Hey, you're blessed. For a lot of people, people didn't know what to make of you when you started talking about this Jesus fellow, right? I was the first one in my family to get saved and to truly start taking faith seriously. So suddenly in college, they walk down and I've got my Bible open while I'm eating my Frosted Flakes. Huh? What cult are you a part of? (laughs) It was very strange to people around me. I was actually the drummer in a heavy metal band and our band broke up largely because me and the bass player were Christians and the electric guitar player and the lead vocalist were not. I lay that on the altar and let it go. I don't know. I don't know what you had to let go of when you became a Christian, but they accepted great change and loss for the gospel. Maybe you were mocked, scorned, disparaged. Maybe you were watched more closely by those around you who wanted to catch you doing something wrong, you goody-two-shoes Christian, think you're so perfect, they threw shade on you, right? Maybe uh, you're afraid of the consequences right now of actually living out your faith. Maybe right now you are not a bold witness, and you're kind of flying under the radar. Your friends and your family don't really know how, you know, into Jesus you are. You don't really live it out out there. In fact, you kind of keep Jesus in your pocket because you're afraid. Right now, you're afraid. Hey, this early church gives you a model of living it proudly and taking the consequences. Not being obnoxious, right? Uh, Not being hateful, not being insulting, but you're out there. You're telling people about it, and there's no fear. You gladly accept change and loss and poor treatment for the sake of Christ. What role models they are to us. Jot this down. They proclaimed Jesus and saw many saved. They proclaimed Jesus. So it says in verse 19, they went, they scattered, and they spoke the word. Spoke the word. That means the truth about Christ. At first, they just told it to the Jews. Well, why did they do that? Well, that was Jesus' pattern. You know, salvation came first to the Jews. Out of Israel came the Messiah. So they went to the synagogue first. Paul set this example, too. When he'd go into town, he'd go to the Jews first. They're supposed to see the Messiah came, catch fire, go tell the world. Sometimes they don't. And so finally, Paul's like, I'm done with you, and I'm going down to the Gentiles. So it's okay that they went to the Jews first, but then they started sharing it with everybody. It says there were some of them, men of Cyrus, uh, Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Those are the Greeks preaching the Lord Jesus. Do you see what they preached? They proclaimed the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Do you see what it means to be saved? You hear the word, you believe the Lord Jesus, and you turn to God. That's what it means to be saved. That's the gospel. That's what they proclaimed. And a lot of these non-Jewish people were getting saved. These are Gentiles, okay? This is really awesome because these non-Jewish people 
who were Greeks, I mean, what a history they had, right? What pride they had in their culture and their gods and their government. And Rome, you know, won the fight. And now Rome's in charge. But Greece, Greeks, I mean, they had a lot of pride. So now these Jews come along talking about this currently trending Jewish cult, okay? And they had no reason to be like, I'm in, unless they believed it was true. They're not going to gain anything, really, in the eyes of their countrymen. They're not going to really go places. They're not going to get a lot of Facebook followers because they suddenly joined this Jesus thing, okay? They believed it was true. They saw what was being done. They heard the word, and they had assurance that Jesus is alive. So you can believe it too. The growth of the early church crossing cultural, ethnic, national barriers gives us great confidence that it was actually true. They proclaimed Jesus and they saw many saved. Do you know because of this, you can reach your neighborhood, your workplace, your family. It starts here without the big names. Paul didn't come to town and do a tent rally. Here's my training. Here's my resume. I've got a smoke machine. You know, no, no. It was the scattered people, no names here, just going and telling people Jesus is alive. Boom, revival starts. Barnabas shows up and he's like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. He's going to go get Paul. He's going to come back. Then they're going to get to work. But who started the prairie fire? People like you. People like you. They just told people about Jesus. Those are the heroes, the unsung heroes that started this whole thing. And I love that it happened in Antioch. Here's a picture of Antioch. And, uh, you know, too often people assume that these cities back then, that is even before the medieval ages, you know, I mean, how, how civilized could they be? Uh, these were very civilized people. The Roman Empire was amazing. The cities were huge, sprawling, glorious. This is Antioch. This is the third largest city in the mighty, vast Roman Empire. This is Antioch. This would be where revival broke out among the Gentiles. This would become the base of operations from which Paul would launch out to reach the world from his first missionary journey. And it's unbelievable what was starting in this city. I don't know where it was, but somewhere in this city, there was a Christian house where the church started. And then many. And then they would find places to gather. And then they polished it. And then they started sharing the gospel. And revival broke out here. This is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It became a capital of the province of Syria. People from every nation around the Roman Empire lived here. This is where we were first called Christians. Now get this, brothers and sisters. Do you know what the third largest city is in our little empire, the United States? Do you know what the third largest city is? I got a picture of it. Check it out. Here's the third largest city in our empire. Wow! There are people in our city from every nation, tribe, and tongue. They are right here. I know when you think about the future of this city, a lot of people, their vision for the future of Chicago is they don't want Chicago in their future. You just want to move away. All right, that's your vision. What do you see in the future? Florida, Indiana, Arizona. Look, I don't fault you if one day you go to some other mission field. But listen, 
while you're here, this is your mission field, all right? We have a rule over the next three years, no complaining about Chicago, all right? If you come to me and you complain about Chicago, I'm going to get you in the car and we're going to go tell 100 people about Jesus to make things better, all right? Do not complain to me about the city of Chicago. This is the third largest city in our little empire, and the third largest city in Rome is where they were first called Christians. What can God do in this city? That's what I want you to be asking. We have a vision for the next three years, thousand days. We want to impact this city in light of fire. It happened in Antioch. It can happen here. What's your vision for your part for impacting this city? I don't know, but I don't want to hear your belly aching anymore. I've complained too. Let's have a bigger vision than that, amen? Let's have a bigger vision because our God is able to transform this city. I know it's dark. I know it's broken. I know people are selfish. I know there's corruption. I've lived in this city my entire life. I know, I know, I know. But God has already done incredible things in our city, and I think he's just getting started. Do you know Billy Graham came a few times to Chicago? He did two crusades. Do you know that? Do you know when he came to town, he and his team went and knocked on one million doors and invited them to this crusade? Do you know that? Do you know tens of thousands of people got saved when he came to Chicago for his crusade? Big vision. Why would he go there? You know, because he saw the field is white. God is going to do unbelievable, incredible things, and he can use you in your neighborhood, on your street, to start the prairie fire. That's where it all started here. Believers who were scattered by persecution, they accepted great change and loss for the gospel, they proclaimed Jesus, and they saw many saved, and we are going to see it too. Amen? We are going to see it too. All right, that's number one. Number two, now let's get to people who are somebodies, okay? Barnabas and Saul, write this down. Barnabas and Saul were missionaries and leaders. Barnabas and Saul were missionaries and leaders. So in verse 22, a great number of people turned to the Lord before they even showed up. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So there's the church in Jerusalem. Now they got their hands full, right? And, uh, and, and now, now people are coming. Guess what's going on in Antioch? Guess what's going on in Antioch? What? Up there? Huh? Yeah, and all these Gentiles are getting saved too. <gasps> so what's going to happen? Well, it says that they sent Barnabas to Antioch. We met Barnabas several chapters ago. He gave a good amount of my sold property, brought it to the Lord. Huge heart. He was a, a, a son of encouragement. He was called. And Barnabas was a great leader. He's described here... Um, as uh, a good man, verse 24, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So he is qualified to serve in a leadership role, and he is also just every, everywhere he goes, he's, he believes the gospel, he believes God's changing people, and he wants to teach others what the truth is. So they would be considered missionaries and leaders together. Uh, when it comes to the word apostle, you have to understand that was a spiritual gift, there was a capital A apostle appointed directly by Jesus who witnessed the resurrection and had the authority to do things like write Bible books and do signs and wonders. The word was also used in a more general case, lowercase a, apostles. The word just means sent out, okay? Those would be like the missionaries of today. They have a special calling on their life. They're being sent out by the Lord, called by the Spirit, but they didn't have the office of apostle. They didn't witness the resurrection. They weren't authorized to speak for Jesus. They weren't capital A apostles. Today, there are no capital A apostles on earth. 
There is no one who has the power they had. There is no one who has the authority they had. We are under the authority of the apostles who laid the foundation for the church on behalf of Jesus Christ. But there are lowercase apostles, and we call them missionaries. We call them church planners. Sometimes it could be like a denominational leader who oversees several churches or regions. Those are apostles. Those are missionaries. They're also leaders. They have authority to build up the church. They're often, Paul was many things. He was an apostle, he was a missionary, and he was also an elder, pastor, overseer at some churches. So there's a lot of overlap here. Barnabas and Saul were missionaries and leaders. Saul was an official apostle, capital A, saw the risen Lord, and could write books of the Bible. Barnabas didn't do those things. They were already doing work in the region, and there's a special call of God in their life. So they were sent out, full of the Holy Spirit, and this is God building up his church. Leaders must be mature, qualified, and consecrated to Christ. Too often today, leaders have a great gift, and therefore people assume they're super godly. That's a mistake. If you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see there's a lot of gifted people in the church who are very ungodly. So they have to be good people, full of the Spirit, and they have to be mature and gifted to be effective as leaders. So that is what Paul and Barnabas model for us. And we will also have those people in our church coming into our church, going out from our church. That's part of God's strategy to build up the church. So jot this down. The Spirit calls some to lead, teach, and surrender to ministry. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, calls some to lead, teach, and surrender to ministry. I mean the vocation of ministry here. I mean people who are saying, this is what I'm doing with my life. Paul was doing one thing. He was a star student under Gamaliel. He was a ruler, probably on the Sanhedrin. He was sent out by the elders of Israel to destroy the church. Then he got saved, and now he is on a totally different life path. God will call some people to our church who are called into ministry. Uh, we have another worship pastor candidate right now who I'm going to start interviewing. He's our best candidate yet in many respects. But I don't know. I don't know his character. I don't know his calling. I don't know. I'm just going to start talking to him. But this is a person who surrendered his life to ministry. He wants to be a full-time worship pastor. And God will call some people to full-time vocational ministry. And this is the Holy Spirit calling people out. Now, when it comes to a special call like this, you don't earn it. You don't level up. You don't win some contest. And then people are like, aha, it's God's work in your heart that, that leads you out. The Holy Spirit will say in a few chapters, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them to do. The Spirit will literally say that. That's God's call, and then the first missionary journey is what comes from that. So the Holy Spirit leads some people to surrender to the vocation of ministry. Sometimes God leads a person to an area of strength. There are people who were in the business world for many years, and they become an executive pastor. It goes in line with their strength, but he adds the spiritual department on top of it all, so they become a minister of that area of ministry. Other times, people call, uh, the Spirit calls people to an area of weakness. So, for example, if you're called to go reach a primitive tribe that doesn't have any Bible books in their language, you're going to be very weak and unprepared for that. And you might spend years and years and years just learning to say, uh, where is the bathroom, right? Or how do I find my way to this other village? You years these people invest because they can't even talk to the villagers that they've decided to reach out to. They're very weak. They're very untrained. They have a lot of work to do, and they might be really bad at it. They might be, some missionaries are impatient, you know, but God calls them to that. And then over time in their weakness, God is strong. Sometimes 
people are called to be evangelists or, uh, or pastors who do not have a very strong speaking gift. And they work to develop it, but it's not an area of strength, and they kind of get nervous in front of people, but that's God's call in their life. And in their weakness, God proves strong. So the Spirit calls some to lead, teach, and surrender to ministry. He may be doing that in your life right now. Maybe God is calling you to pursue training or an assessment or some sort of way you can figure out if ministry is in your future. Have you surrendered to this? So I can tell you my story. I got saved when I was in college. Pretty quickly after I got saved, there were these thoughts in the back of my mind, and I didn't know what they were, but I'd go to church, and I wouldn't just be hearing the sermon. I would be hearing some sort of suggestion to pay attention to how the preaching was happening, some sort of prompting. You can do that. You should try that. That propelled me eventually to like try and lead a Sunday school class or to go to VBS and share something. I was, I was pushed, propelled, suggested to try this out. That was the Holy Spirit planting seeds in my heart. And then several years later, got married, and, and then Lauren and I started getting uh, involved in a church plant in the western suburbs, and then it was do more, right? Uh, start the worship team. Lauren was prompted to start the kids' ministry. You can do this. You can be a part of this. We started doing more and more and more. Finally, one day, the pastor said, have you ever thought about becoming a pastor? And I was like, <gasps> no. And I went home, and I was like, I don't know. Could I become a pastor? We spent a whole year trying to figure it out, praying about it, and God made it clear that's what he was calling us to do. I was a teacher. Lauren was a teacher. My heart started getting eclipsed with teaching, and I started thinking more and more and more about ministry. I know now that was God's Spirit leading me into pastoral ministry. That's what it felt like, but there was a prompting. There were some specific opportunities that came up, and then there was kind of fear of provision. Well, how's, how's God going to provide for us? When my first church came to me and said, we want to hire you as our full-time youth pastor, I was like, okay. They said, we can pay half of your salary. And by faith, we're trusting God to bring in the rest. We were just so excited, though. We were like, God can do anything. Let's go. And we never missed a paycheck. It was tight. Like, like not much in the bank at that church for years. God provided faithfully every week. So that's how we got into ministry. And God just continued to lead us out in 2000. Eight, I finished up my degree at Moody. We surrendered, and God opened doors for us to launch this church here in 2009. The Holy Spirit directed the whole thing. So the Spirit calls some to lead, teach, and surrender to ministry. Maybe he's prompting you to explore it too. Jot this down. They made a great investment in kingdom work. They made a great investment in kingdom work. They reordered their lives. Paul left behind who he was. Barnabas left behind whatever he was doing. They'd do some bivocational stuff. Paul would still make some tents, but it was all to support the ministry. He had people, churches that would support him. <clears throat> they made a great investment in kingdom work. You might be like, oh, I love Paul. The book of Romans changed my life. Yeah, you know what they thought of him back then? He said, I feel like the scum of the earth. Even the churches he planted, like Corinth. They were like, we're not so sure about you. We like these other guys who are coming to town who are flashier, you know, more gifted. And uh, he had to send some letters to them because they were closing their heart to him. They made a great investment in kingdom work, and it was often thankless. I'm so thrilled for the people who make a great investment in kingdom work here. They're willing to go places. They're willing to give their time, their energy, their talents, right? That the, that the church might be built up. It's really awesome when people give their lives over, especially to vocational ministry. I think of Pastor Stephen and Nikki. 
You guys are awesome. We love you guys. Stephen's upstairs leading step two right now, but the investment that you make in our students on Sunday night is raising up the next generation of Christians. And you're building your family. There's a lot of things you could be doing at home, right? You moved, renovation. But you spend so much time on the church, and you've surrendered to that special call in the ministry. And the church couldn't be built up like this if you didn't say yes to that, right? Letting go of your time and your energy and your comfort. And on top of everything else you're doing, you know, caring for these students, that's how the church grows. Because people say yes to stuff like that. I think of Pastor Bob and and Debbie. They've been in ministry for decades And they have made a great investment in kingdom work. And they said yes to more investment in kingdom work here because they know the church is being built up through people who say, I'm in. So people have to make a great investment in kingdom work. And there's a variety of ways people do that. They become ministry leaders. They become deacons. They become elders. They become small group leaders. They say yes, and they make a great investment in kingdom work. That's what's going on here. So it says that Barnabas went and found Saul in verse 25. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It also says that Paul, uh, when he came, that he had already been doing effective work in the region. So they made a great investment in kingdom work. Jot this down. The church was strengthened and multiplied greatly. The church was strengthened and multiplied greatly. When people say yes to more ministry, more time, more energy, then the church is built up. It's edified. People are taught. The church is organized. People are deployed. The church is strengthened and multiplied greatly. Our staff is really awesome. I mean, when I think about, you know, what Julia does with our business and our communications, I mean, our church is multiplied greatly because she said yes, leaving what she was doing and coming on staff here. And Sarah Pivowarski right now, a full-time effort with our kids, planning VBS. Are you ready to get those songs stuck in your head until Jesus comes back? Are you ready for that? That takes a full-time effort. She said yes to that. Jesse, who was leading our worship and tech team for a while, I mean, she has said yes to, to, to doing that and communication as well with hours and hours and hours every week. That's how the church is strengthened and multiplied greatly. All right, so number one, believers were scattered by persecution. Number two, Barnabas and Saul were missionaries and leaders, and they give us these examples, right, of making a great investment in kingdom work. Number three, Agabus was a prophet who protected the church. All right, so in verse 27, it says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Let's talk about that for a little while. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people in Antioch. Whoops, I lost my place. In those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named Agabus. If you are pregnant and a boy is on the way, consider the name Agabus. You can call him Aggie for short stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. All right, so what do we learn from this guy named Agabus? Well, he's a prophet who protected the church. He came to town. He had this spiritual gift of prophecy. It's the ability to speak for God with specific knowledge revealed by God. Prophets could declare the past for God, reminding the church of promises and warnings God had made. Prophets could reveal present information that guided and protected the church. Go here, don't go there. Or they could declare the future. 
And they could declare the future thousands of years in advance in the Old Testament and even in the New with the Apostle John uh, revealing the book of Revelation. This is all from God's Holy Spirit. It has nothing to do with the prophet being extra special or extra spiritual or leveling up to the point where they could know all this. It is all from God. So Agabus was a prophet who protected the church. Jot this down. He accurately predicted the future multiple times. Multiple times. Here and in Acts 21, he predicted Paul would be arrested in Jerusalem. He was confirmed as a legitimate source of divine knowledge along with others. It says there were several prophets here in this text. And so we have to ask ourselves, what do we believe about this today? Well, first and foremost, prophets in this book add to Luke's primary message, which you should know by now. We can have assurance that Jesus is alive because the prophets are accurately telling things they couldn't know otherwise. So the main thing you should learn from a prophet here in the Bible is Jesus is alive, the gospel is true, and we need to go tell the world. That's why it's in here. Now today, some people get very wound up about prophecy, and they want a whole book. They want to know the future. Who wouldn't want to know the future? And they want to know how all the life things are coming together, so they seek out people who seem to have clairvoyance and who can tell them what's coming or how things tie together. Many today are self-proclaimed prophets, and they claim to have divine insight that can reveal the future or tie together current events in a spiritual way. They could claim to speak for God with special understanding. The Bible tells us to beware of false prophets. So turn to the person next to you and say, watch out. Go ahead, do that. Now turn to the person on the other side of you and say, watch out. It's such a powerful gift, and it's so amazing in the Bible. And when it comes up, Jesus, one of the first things he says about the end times is, watch out. Because there will be many prophets and false messiahs who come. Beware. In 1 John 4, we are told to have a high level of scrutiny for people who claim to know the future. This is an incredible thing that's very rare. We are told to test the Spirit, so don't be gullible. Do some people say things that are spooky accurate about the future? Yes. But most of what we hear today that's called prophecy is not the biblical form of prophecy. Let me just share with you one comical thing that's come up in the past. The Simpsons predicted the future 30 times, friends before you get all worked up about some Instagram influencer who seems to know a couple things that happen, I present to you The Simpsons Test. The Simpsons, over 700 episodes, 33 years, predicted the Donald Trump presidency, three Super Bowl winners, that Disney would buy Fox, that Siegfried and Roy would get attacked by a tiger, a World Cup winner and ref scandal, a new skyscraper that hadn't been built in London yet, a Nobel Prize winner, and the possibility that the universe is shaped like a donut, which is still being confirmed. All right, so if you're getting drawn in to someone, a book, a blogger, someone who wrote a book, who claims to know when the world's going to end, hey, can they beat the Simpsons? Because they got it right 30 times. All right, all right, you see what I'm saying here? You see what I'm saying here? Don't be too impressed with self-proclaimed prophets. Agabus accurately predicted the future multiple times. 
Jot this down. The church responded with generous love and sacrifice. The church responded with generous love and sacrifice. So they collected an offering, a famine relief offering, to send to those living in Judea. It's really cool, cross-cultural. They're caring for people that they used to hate, right? In verse 29, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So the Holy Spirit that, you know, gave this prophecy to Agabus also prompted the love in the hearts of the disciples to give to those who were going to go through a famine. And there were several famines in the Roman Empire. We don't know which one this one tied into, but clearly it happened. So, you know, why do we do a global fund offering? Because the Spirit prompts love for Christians who are not right here in our four walls. A love that extends out, a love that goes all to the other nations. When Pastor Alex was here sharing what it's like to be a Christian in Ukraine right now, the Spirit prompts love in your heart, and that then comes out in generosity to help the church all around. That's how the early church was built up, in love and in truth. This is part of our bold witness. Jesus said, they will know your Christians by your ability to quote Romans by heart. Oh wait, did I get that wrong? He said, they will know your Christians by your Right, that's right. You're watching. That's good. So we have to have generous love and sacrifice helping other people who are in need. Jot this down. So we have to hold a biblical view of prophecy. We have to hold a biblical view of prophecy. This happened to protect the church. Uh, This happened as a source of divine knowledge to give the church, uh, to help the church to be built up. Let's cover a few more bases on this gift of prophecy. One more pop culture reference. Um, So The New York Times wrote an article, February 12, 2021. Christian prophets are on the rise. What happens when they're wrong? So a lot of people online predicted that Trump would win the presidency before he did. And he was an unlikely victor. So they were like, see, I got it right. And people were like, oh, you're magical. Well, then when Trump ran again, they said he's going to win again. And then he didn't win again. And then these prophets had some splaining to do. How did they get it wrong? I was wrong. And all their followers were like, you're a fraud. Uh, Yeah. So we've got to be careful. So what are we to think about prophecy? 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 21, we'll put it up on the screen, uh, says this. Do not quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Don't be like, that never happened. I don't believe that stuff. Uh, But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Prophecies in the New Testament, not like the old. In the old, you did what the prophet said, when the prophet said it, or you could die on the spot. Not the way it works in the New Testament. That's what the apostles filled, okay? And there's none of them on earth today. The apostles fulfilled their role. So prophets in the New Testament were under the authority of the apostles and therefore the word of God. 1 Corinthians 14, 3 and 37, here's what it says. It says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. It's the heart. That's what happened here. And go to the next slide. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul put them in the place. You are under the authority of the Lord and you are under the authority of the apostles. So let me just say this. Maybe you're a person who's getting a little too wound up about an author or a blogger or somebody who seems to have clairvoyant knowledge. It seems like they've got a walkie-talkie to God and you wish, you know, that they, uh, uh, well, this, look, this book should weigh 10,000 pounds in your soul when you read it. This is the heaviest thing that you are carrying around and following. Any other person saying any other thing should be a feather in your life. 
compared to this, okay? Compared to this. Don't let anyone else have your heart and your soul and your fear and whatever that belongs to the Word of God. This is where your direction comes from, and beware of anyone who is claiming to have this gift of prophecy in a form that's unbiblical. All right, so number one, believers who were scattered by persecution, they accepted great change, proclaimed Jesus, saw many saved. Barnabas and Saul were missionaries and leaders. Agabus was a prophet who protected the church. And then jot this down, Herod, James, and Peter. They give us something to think about too. And this is uh, going to continue next week. So this point, uh, we're not going to exhaust this passage. This is going to be a bit of a cliffhanger. Chapter 12, verse 1. This actually happened um, before Paul showed up to Antioch. So Luke is recording things a little out of order here. But in chapter 12, verse 1, it says this. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. All right, so you remember Peter, James, and John were the inner circle, right? Uh, James and John, sons of thunder. And now he's gone, a martyr. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers, 16 soldiers, to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people and kill him. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. All right, so write this down. Some will reject the gospel and try to destroy the church. This is Herod. Herod shows us some will reject the gospel and try to destroy the church. We're tracking here how people are responding to the gospel. That's what this whole sermon is about. We're to go be bold witnesses and we can't control how people react. Herod represents those who reject the gospel and try to destroy the church. Persecuted the church, and many today are still persecuting the church. Yet the church continues to grow. God eventually humiliates those who oppose him, and it will not end well for Herod. But, in the meantime, there will be people at your work who pressure you to stay quiet who, or who try and get rid of you. There will be people at college, teachers, who mock and scorn you for your faith. There will be some who hate you because you're one of those Christians or strongly oppose you and say what you're saying is nonsense. Get ready because some people will reject your testimony and make life very hard for you. If you're in high school, there might be people who bully you because you're one of those people. If you dare to say something that goes against their beliefs, they will mock you and make fun of you. Some will reject the gospel and try to destroy the church. Herod reveals this to us. He had every reason on earth to understand the Messiah had come to fall down and worship him. By this point, you're, you're heading into the AD 40s right now. All right, He had everything he needed to conclude this is true. Jesus is alive and I shouldn't mess with the apostles, and yet still he kills one of them, and it is going to cost him his life. So some will reject the gospel, try to destroy the church. They will eventually greatly suffer, probably here, if not for sure, in the next life. Jot this down. Some will give their lives as martyrs for the gospel. This is the apostle James. Some will give their lives as martyrs for the gospel. Jesus predicted all this. All believers are called to lay down their life, to die to self, to take up their cross, very few Christians will pay the ultimate price, but every Christian has to be prepared to give it all up for Jesus. Mama Thunder came to Jesus. Do you remember that? Hey, uh, I, want, I want my sons to sit at your right and your left hand when you come in your kingdom. You remember Mama Thunder? 
Where did, where did James and John get this nickname, Mama Thunder came to advocate for her boys, right? She's going to get them. Peter's taking the top spot, not on my watch. And you remember what Jesus said to her? It's not me to, you know, give that. Um, it's not me to give that. What if he had told her the truth? What if he had told her the truth? All right, Mama. Your first son's going to be the uh, first apostle to die. Deal? Deal? What an honor. Are you in? And your other son, he's going to make it to the end. I mean, legend has it that they tried to kill John. Didn't work so well. Boil him and then they, you know, sent him to the island of Patmos where he, he you know, died a lonely death. Deal? Deal? That's what I'm calling them to. There's no promises to these men to have a good, cushy, comfy life. All the apostles, church tradition holds, uh, were martyred for their faith, eventually. So some will give their lives as martyrs for the gospel. You can have great confidence the gospel is true because the early apostles, they said it with blood. They believed it till the end. And then jot this down. Some will be miraculously delivered by God's power. Some will be miraculously delivered by God's power. And that's where we have the dot, dot, dot ending because I'm going to leave Peter in jail all week long. All right, and then we're going to find out next week what happened. But Peter was kept alive in prison. Earnest prayer was made to God by the church. I want to close in prayer. And here's the challenge. Are you ready to become a bold witness for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you convinced that he's alive? And do you want the world to know it? Do you believe God can use you, just like the early believers, to start a prairie fire revival for Christ? And that there are going to be people God rallies to that work who are called into ministry. There are going to be people who God uses to do incredible things to protect the church, and it doesn't matter, there's still going to be people who try and destroy it. Are you ready for that? Let's surrender ourselves to represent the Lord Jesus boldly, no matter how people respond around us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Jesus, we love you, and we trust you, and we believe the gospel is true. We believe the word of God is the word of God. We believe, Jesus, that you are Lord. And our hearts are blown away by what you did in Antioch in the first century church. You started revival in the third largest city of that empire. Oh Lord, we cry out for our city, for our dark, corrupt, crooked, lustful, envious, violent city. Do what only you can break down the strongholds, win hearts to Christ, turn people away from folly. There's so much division and hatred. Disregard, Lord. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Send us out. Help us to pray for those in our neighborhood. Help us to believe great things from a great God. You did it before, and you will do it again. Use us, whether it's a conversation over coffee with a family member, or whether it's a compassionate uh, listening ear over lunch with a co-worker, hearing their struggles. Make us lights in the darkness. Lord, we can't control how people will respond when we tell others about you, but help us to not be afraid. Help us to not be afraid. We lay down our lives for you, and we want the world to know you. No turning back. No turning back. Give us our voice and use us, O oh Lord, to reach people with the gospel. And I think of anybody here today 
who is thinking they've never asked you to be Savior and Lord. They have never believed the word, and as the Bible says, turned to God. I pray that they would be assured that the gospel is true, that Jesus is alive. They heard incredible things today that happened in the Bible. May they stop doubting and believe. May they call out to you, Jesus, right now and say, Jesus, be my Savior, be my Lord. And then may they say, make me your brave, bold witness to others. Lord, we consecrate ourselves to you, and we're so grateful that you built up the church that we are now a part of. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.